We decided intentionally not to do kind of a standalone uh, Father's Day message, which usually is one of two things. It's either the heroes of the faith message, which lifts up fathers as the heroes and the patriarchs of the faith, or in most of the cases, a Father's Day message just beats up dads for doing everything wrong, okay? And uh, we don't want to do either one of those two things. We decided to continue our series, uh, but that does not mean that we don't love our dads, appreciate our fathers, and we hope uh, this a part of worshiping this morning and celebrating the greatness of God is just a part of you enjoying your Father's Day, all right? So as we continue, actually, we're going to end the series. Uh, there's probably more things coming out online, but the, and we'll talk more in the, in the future, but Today we're ending the series of the I Don't Get It series, which is specifically to be a kind of an Old Testament kind of review of the things that we don't really get, or sometimes we don't read, we no longer read them, we heard about them once, and we kind of, kind of pushed them to the side because we didn't get it, we didn't understand it. And that's what we've been kind of attacking and kind of walking through, through this series, okay? Um, the reason is because of our theme verse, and this is what Paul wrote to his disciple, he says, I want you to know that all scripture is inspired. Sometimes your, your NIV will say God breathed. Your King James Version will say uh, God breathed as well in terms of the root of that word. That it's useful to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us what to do what is right. It says God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now remember, Paul's not writing about his letters He's writing about the Old Testament. He's writing about the Jewish scriptures. God gave this to us for a reason. It's okay if you read through it and you don't get something, but we want to walk through as a church the ability to appreciate it, the ability to, to learn from it, and kind of target and talk about the things we don't get. Can't go through the last two weeks and recap because there's too much uh, to talk about today. But I'll give you the quick titles. The first week we talked about the book of wrath and death. Sometimes people look at the, the Old Testament as just like, good, it's a horrible Game of Thrones, you know, kind of story, like all this death and horribleness. Shin, Shin did an amazing job uh, uh, preaching and teaching through that the first week. Last week, we talked about the big book of rules, right? The law. We don't understand why it's given to us. We don't understand the context for it today. We don't know how it teaches us things and how it's beneficial to equip us. Today, we're going to talk about the book of injustice, the book of injustice. Now, that word, just in and of itself, because of our current kind of current day events, is going to lead you down the path of, of constantly this morning. When I say injustice, you're going to be thinking about current day conversation, about the injustice that, that we're hearing about and experiencing in our country and people are talking about right now. And I want you to know, I am going to address it. I am going to get there. But before we get there, we have to talk about, again, what do we see in Scripture? What do we not get and how do we start with a big picture view, as well as some kind of theological foundational stones that we need to have in our lives? And then I'll walk towards the end in terms of the application of how it does apply to today. All right? We know this. This is N.T. Wright. Just talking about justice itself. N.T. Wright says that the intention of God, justice is the intention of God, expressed from Genesis to Revelation to set the whole world right. It's what is right. It is what's fair. It's what just. That's where this word uh, comes from. We also see in Psalm 89, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. That's God. They're talking about God. 
Also says in, um, I think it's in, go to the scripture, Isaiah. This is Isaiah. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. This is Isaiah talking about God himself. This is the foundation of his throne is justice. Justice is a big deal to God. And T. Wright says it's the story that he's writing from Genesis to Revelation to set everything right. That he's not going to falter or fail until he establishes it. But that leads us to the question, and this is the question we've been tackling every, every week. So why all the injustice? If that's truly God, then why all the injustice, especially in the Old Testament, especially as we read, we don't have to go very far. We can just stick in Genesis and see so much in terms of the history of God's people, the things that were not right, at least the way we read them. They were not just. I'll give you a few examples. Well, Job, I use Job as an example because it's such a popular one, right? If you don't know that, that's critics kind of view this as God's uh, cosmic chess match with Satan, you know, using Job as a pawn. It's not really the way it's written, but the critics believe that. It's, a, it's an unbelievable story of incredible loss in terms of Job's life. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. And just the, 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 the redeeming nature of, of how God worked in and through him. It's a phenomenal book. But it certainly doesn't feel very just, okay? We have Hosea, okay, in terms of the uh, um, minor prophets. Hosea um, is told by God that he has to go and forgive and continue to pursue a woman who is unfaithful to him in marriage. That doesn't seem right, does it? Hagar and Ishmael, if you don't know this story with Abraham, like he is Abraham's firstborn son. And, and because of, of it wasn't through the promise, it wasn't what God said was going to happen, they took matters in their own hands, they are cast out. They are cast aside. Now God takes care of them, and, and, but it's not the same. He doesn't get the promise. Same thing with Isaac and Esau. They're twins. The firstborn gets the blessing from God, and yet God, from the father, from the patriarch, and yet God says, Jacob's the one I'm choosing, the secondborn of the twins. And so Esau loses his inheritance, he loses the birthright. Joseph, <laughs> sold by his brothers who want to kill him, sold by his brothers into slavery, God establishes and gives him some favor, and then he's falsely accused and imprisoned. And then he is forgotten by the people who are supposed to remember and help him. And then you see it with the slavery of God's people. You see it with, with the, the nation of Israel, this sort of constant uh, judging and this recurring judging and redemption of, of God's people itself through the whole Old Testament. And all I'm saying is that as you read these things, sometimes you can get stuck with the stuff that doesn't look fair, it doesn't look right, it doesn't look just. And it can feel like this is a big book of injustice that somehow God's supposed to be, you know, the, it's supposed to be justice is his throne and coming out from him. And yet what we read is something very, very different. And sometimes we can stop. I'm going to take us through one specific story. Talk about Joseph and God's people. Joseph, at the end of Joseph's story, he is, he is put to a position to, that God wanted him in to be able to save his people, save God's people and his family in Egypt. And then you get to the point that at the end of Joseph's life, this is the end of Genesis, okay? This is his brothers. They were worried. Still to the end of their life, they were worried that, that Joseph was going to change his mind and sort of retaliate on his brothers. But he said, look, you intended to harm me. 
He was, he was truthful about it. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He goes on and he tells his brothers, he says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and our dad. Now, have you ever told someone that you felt like God was going to do something? And not only did he not do it right away, things went horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Anybody ever had that feeling or, or instance? Well, that's what happens. Joseph's like, don't worry, guys. God's coming. Now, everything that Joseph said is true. It did happen. But not before it went horribly wrong. It goes on in Exodus. As you read the Exodus story, it starts, it says, Joseph and all his brothers, and that whole generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Old Testament, right? They multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And it goes on to say that the, the Egyptians got nervous. They didn't like that. They didn't like that they were growing in number. So it goes on, you skip down, it says they ended up putting slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built uh, Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields and all the harsh labor, the Egyptians, they worked them ruthlessly. Now we want to, usually in Exodus, we jump right to Moses, right? Nod your head if you're with me, right? You jump right to Moses and you don't really think through the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery that God's people were a part of. Okay, this isn't us versus them. This is, this is us in terms of our her spiritual heritage. It's God's people who he allowed to be enslaved for over 400 years. Matter of fact, you go on, when they got ready to leave, this is what Moses wrote. He says, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of that time, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt when they actually were rescued. So don't rush to the end of the story. And that's going to be in a couple of our uh, passages today. Don't rush to the end of the story. Understand that that was not very fair to them. That was not very just to God's people who he says he loves, who he cares for. That He would allow that to happen. And so we want to just kind of start with some very big, big picture ideas, and then we want to walk through some foundational things just so that we can be on the same page. And I know that you're going to push back a little bit here in a minute, but just, just stay with me, okay, till the end. Stay with me online till the, till the end, okay? God's heart is for justice. Everybody say for justice. It's for justice. Say it again. God's heart is for justice, Okay. All those scriptures we read are true. They are the foundation of his throne. He will not falter and fail until he sees it. N.T. Wright's quote about the fact that he's going to make things right. And, and God's plan for that was twofold. It was Jesus because Jesus is justice. He's the personification of God's justice on the earth. Jesus is the one, if you've read the end of the story, if you've read the back of the book, right, Dan Fadel, right? We, we know how it ends. Jesus is going to make everything right. Somebody say amen. Okay. So we're all there, right? 
We've read the story. We know how it ends. Jesus is going to make everything right. Justice will happen. But until then, he gave a charge to his people to be the representation of God, to to do what God has called them to do. Here's a few scriptures. Learn to do what's good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphan. Fight for the rights of widows. That's Isaiah 1, 17. Keep going. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Maybe in the current days, you've even seen some social posts that share these three words because they're, they're very common. And sort of that idea, well, what does God really want us to do? Even now, today, when we see injustice, he wants us, his people, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Last week, I talked all about Jesus and the Good Samaritan and Jesus with the great commandment, right? Summing, if you didn't know why the rules exist, summing up all those rules into loving your neighbor as yourself. And matter of fact, Paul says it this way as a kind of a repeat in Galatians. He says, for the whole law can be summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And last week I told you, your neighbor is the people who don't look like you. <laughs> they don't think like you. And they don't believe like you. So here is even Jesus himself saying the whole law is wrapped up in this idea of doing justice, sowing love in your life doing this work, and yet, why do we still see the injustice? Not just in the Old Testament. Why do we still see it today? Why do we still see it today? Well, I'm gonna give you two foundational sort of cornerstones that I want you to just take a moment and listen to and let it sink in. Because they affect your world view. They affect how you see the world. And again, I I expect a little pushback in terms of maybe how you've been raised, maybe other churches you've been a part of, but we trust that all scripture is God-breathed, that it is the word of God for us, and we believe that it's true. Here's the first foundational stone. Well, actually, it's not, but this is going to be the sets us up for it. When you ask why the injustice, I want you to see this. Injustice, injustice, it resides here in the hearts of mankind. With all those stories I told you about, all those stories at the, at the beginning in Genesis, even when you talk about what God allowed, injustice still came at the hands of men. They still came at the hands of one another. Why? Because injustice resides here, in our hearts. It is, it is natural in us. We have a predisposition to love everything besides God, to love ourselves more than God and more than others, to love wrong more than right, especially if we can justify it. And don't, 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 don't think you're not a part of this because listen, if you have the chance to write the rules, you will rig the game. If you have the chance to write the rules, you will rig the game to, to, to favor and, and take advantage of you and maybe those like you. Guys, we've all made decisions in our life that we felt justified in, and we've made decisions in our life that we felt like was best for us and best for our family and best for at the moment and best for the time. And I'm telling you that injustice resides in our heart. And even though we don't see it right away, there is a trail of injustice behind us. 
because it exists here, which takes me to that first foundation. Okay, the first foundation, which is this truth from a biblical worldview. There are no good people. Okay, by the way, the underscore is for all of my kids in the room and online that are doing your worksheet. I hope you've been catching those. I forgot to mention it earlier. (laughs) It's for you. There are no good people. Now, this is a problem because we're all hearing people talk about this in a way that seems very generic, and I understand their intention. Well, I mean, most of the cops are good cops. There's just a few bad ones. You know, most of the protesters are good people. There's just some bad ones, right? We've all shared to some degree, some element of this, even on social media, that most people are generally good. They don't want bad things. And yet that's not what scripture teaches us. There is a worldview and it has penetrated the church and the believers of God that for some humanistic way, that everybody's really not that bad and the world is set kind of just benign and there's no fundamental problems that we can't sort of get past if we just try a little bit harder, you know, if we, just, if we just work on it a little bit more, we can sort of improve a little bit. And yet that is not, hear me, that is not what the word of God says. That's not what the word of God says which is why we need to have a biblical understanding of this, a biblical worldview. Here's just a few verses. Paul's writing to Titus and saying that we too, talking to the church uh, church people, he's like, we too were rebellious and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to our many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy. And we hated one another. He's talking about the people of God. He's like, look, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you were, especially in this context. Paul writes about himself in Romans and says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. Paul's very aware. Remember, he said he was the chief of all sinners. Nothing good lives in here. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Keep going. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Paul's very aware of his own nature. You know this verse in Jeremiah as well. says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It's desperately wicked. (laughs) Who really knows how bad it is? Who really knows how bad it is? And here's the problem, again. This is a worldview that from a biblical perspective takes us, starts us off, starts us with an understanding there really are no good people, okay? We're rebellious. We have hate in us. There's injustice that resides here. There's nothing good necessarily in me. That is my sinful nature. And the heart is is deceitful right? That's the foundation. So when we see in moments like today, in moments in our current environment where we're we're all wanting justice, we're all talking about the injustice that people are experiencing, there can be a tendency that if you start with, well, everybody's good, everybody's good. Everybody just has a, you know, everybody has a little light inside them and you just got to blow on it to make it a little bit brighter, right? If you start there, you're not going to end up where you need to go. 
You have to start with the right foundation. For example, when you hear quotes like this, this is from Martin Luther King Jr. You'll hear this brought out in our current conversation. Hey, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And again, if you are thinking in a worldview that, it's, that everybody's just really more or less good except for the few bad people, then you can read a quote like that and you can think that Martin Luther King Jr. said, oh, you know, just our version of love is all we need. You know, our version of love the one you're with until they disappoint you and then you love the next one you're with, Right? Like, you know, that's all we really need. And, we, and hate doesn't work, you know, and, and, and darkness can't drive out darkness. But that's not, that's not the idea that the light inside of you is the solution. It's not the light and decency of a human that's the solution. No, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. He knew the word of God. He knew who the light was. We sang about it this morning, right? He's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's the promise keeper. He is the what? He's the light in the darkness, right? No, he knew who he was talking about. You have to have the right worldview, even to understand something like this. Now, here's the good news. I just gave you the bad news. Bad news is one stone. Good news is the other. Okay, there are no good people. But there are redeemed people. Okay? There are redeemed people who have been saved, who have been purchased by the blood and the work of Jesus Christ, who have surrendered their heart and their life to him, who have the Holy Spirit that indwells them. There are redeemed people. There are people in your life, there are people here at our church, this is the, this is the nature of who the church is called to be, is the redeemed and so when we talk about people, I'm not just trying to make a blanket statement that there's no good people. I'm talking about a theological foundation of understanding where we actually start from. And then there is this beautiful redemptive story, right, of Jesus that redeems us, that redeems his people. Here's a beautiful picture of that in Ephesians 2. Hey, once you were dead, dead, dead people aren't good. Everybody with me? Once you were dead because of your disobedience in many sins. That's how we start, is dead. All of us, just to say it one more time. All, right, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and our inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we're subject to God's anger, just like everybody else. And he goes on to say, but... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, redeemed. Everybody with me? Yes? You have to start here. I can't get you to the end if you don't start here. There are no good people. Okay? That's why sometimes people will say, well, how come bad things happen to good people? You know, have you ever heard that before? Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. There are no good people. Okay? And the only good person that ever lived, the worst thing happened to him. Okay? He was crucified. 
So if you don't start in the right place, if you don't have the right worldview, I'm telling you, you can get lost. You can get lost in what you think is just. You can get lost in what you think is right. You can, get, you can attach a Jesus and Christian bumper sticker to your actions, and I'm telling you, you're going to be off base. And this is what we see is an example in Jesus' time. We see this as a really, and this is my primary example this morning, to help us understand even not just what happened in the Old Testament, things we, we don't get, but just current day. Why does God still allow the injustice? Well, injustice resides here. And even though we are redeemed, there's a constant battle, right? Paul said this in Galatians. There's a constant battle between our old sinful nature and the spirit of God for who gets to drive the car constantly. There's a constant fight, right? Here's the example and the encounter that happens in Jesus' day. This is in John. If you want to turn to John 8, I'll put it on the screen for you. <clears throat> Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, as was pretty often. And he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now go back. They put her up in front of the crowd. Just understand, that's a big deal. They decide to make a spectacle of her, and they have a reason for it. You'll see it in just a minute. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, okay, the rules, says to stone her. What say you, right? What do you say? That's like KGAV coming out, right? What say you? <laughs> Keep going. They were trying to trap him. And this is, again, this is the point of this. They make a spectacle. They're trying to trap Jesus into saying something they can use against him because he's a rabbi. That's how they want, they, 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 he just, they just think he's another teacher that's screwing things up. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Okay. They kept demanding an answer. Here they are, ready to stone this woman. They're kept demanding an answer. Well, he stood up and said, all right, now just pause for a minute. Imagine if you were the woman. And the first words you hear Jesus say is all right. But the question he's bringing about, and I want you to, this is a big deal. He says, all right, you can. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I don't like John sometimes. I don't like scripture sometimes, okay? I don't know what he's doing. He won't tell us what he's doing, okay? There's a whole bunch of conjecture. I don't, it's tic-tac-toe, it's something. He's doing something in the dirt. But for whatever reason, John does not want make, to make that the point of the story, which is fine. But Jesus' response to them is the question. He gives permission which we can't really understand with the question. And it says, but when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until the only one left, or the only, only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, I'm not going to read the end of the story. 
I'm not going to read the end of the story because the end of the story sometimes distracts us and overshadows the, where I really want to take us today, which is why do we still see the injustice happening? Now, the end of the story, I'll tell you, but, you know, Jesus says, hey, where's, where is everybody that condemns you? Is there no one left? And she says, no. And Jesus, of course, speaks truth and grace over her. I don't condemn you, but I, I want you to go and sin no more. So there's a big part of that that's, that's important. But sometimes in this story, sometimes in this story, we, we, we sometimes put ourselves in the place of Jesus or in the place of the woman. And maybe there's a time at which you, you are the woman in the story and you need to hear those words from Jesus, the grace and the truth. We are never Jesus in this story, just to let you know. But sometimes we're the woman. Who are we in the story? We are the ones holding the rocks. That's who we are in this story. We are the ones who gathered together. We are the teachers, we are the, we are the religious people who believed we were doing the right thing. Okay? We would have grabbed our rocks. We would have been told what was going on. We would have showed up. We might have been there at the temple and they said, oh, this is what's happening. They made a spectacle. Find the closest rock to you. Okay. You know, there's some young, youngins out there with their phone doing quick selfies, you know, like just carrying out God's law. Adulterers' lives don't matter, you know. That's who we are. Okay, that's who we are. Do not sit there and talk about this story and put yourself as the hero or the victim because we are not usually them. We are the ones who are judging and condemning others. That's who we are. Why? When we lift up our rocks, just understand this from a big picture standpoint, we are usually justified, educated, and fairly self-assured of what we're getting ready to carry out. When we lift up our rocks, that's usually the three things in there. Okay, just think about the, just think about the crowd. The crowd knew what the law said. They were educated. They were justified because the teachers, the ones in charge, told them this is what was supposed to happen. So they were justified. They had a few verses that kind of made them feel more self-assured. But even more than that, they found the circle of the people who thought just like them. And they all picked their rocks up. Get ready to deliver justice. And something that we look at in the back and just go, oh, that's horrible. How could that possibly be? Well, guys, it's because it's in our nature. It's in our nature. That the first thing that we do without following the spirit of God in our lives, without following the spirit's leading, no matter what the case is, whether we're fighting for something, whether we're defending something, or whether we're just trying to self-preserve our own thoughts and actions, we will pick up our rocks. That's our first nature. To judge others, to condemn others, to cast, uh, to cast uh, bad light on others, we will do it. Why? Because we will feel justified. And we will feel like we are educated enough about what we feel like. And we will be self-assured because we will always find the crowd that feels the same way we do. Now, I will speak a little bit to our current day and our current events. 
Because there's lots of people who have picked up their rocks in our current, our current day crisis. There's lots of people who have picked up their rocks because it's the first, it's, I'm telling you, it's the instinct. It's what's natural. And there are people, especially when it comes to the racist issue, there are people that are really struggling because they're just basically saying, well, yeah, but I'm not. Yeah, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't create those systems. I, that's not me. That's not me. So we pick up our rock. And we fail to understand what Paul said in Galatians, which in Galatians 6, which he basically said, listen, what you sow in the flesh, what you sow in your own natural strength, you will reap in the flesh. But what you sow in spirit, you will reap in spirit. This is an issue of sowing and reaping us. This is a system that God created. And so even though there's people picking up rocks on every side of this conversation, I'm just telling you, what we're experiencing as a nation, as a country, is we are reaping what others have sown before us. Okay, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not, it's just the truth. We have had laws that dehumanized and marginalized and discriminated against the minority in our country. We, we have. And even when laws changed, we still let systems linger that sort of gave the moral stamp or the moral approval to favor some and to discriminate against others. We're just, we're just reaping what has been sown. We're reaping what has been sown. And, and, and our argument against that isn't and shouldn't be to pick up our rocks. Because you're not, and you never, and you don't are a part of, and you, that's not the goal. People will, anytime we pick up rocks, I'm telling you, anytime we pick up our rocks and think that we're doing justice, you may not see it immediately, but there's going to be a trail of just more injustice behind you. There are people picking up rocks to fight for something. There are people picking up rocks to defend something. And then quite frankly, guys, there's evil in the world. Sometimes there's just people picking up rocks because they want to watch the world burn. We're not going to get anywhere. Okay? Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate does not drive out hate. Look at our political system. You're telling me we're not trusting in hate to drive out hate? You're telling me we're not trusting in man-made solutions to man-created problems and we think we're going to get justice on the other side of that? We're not. Not when we pick up our rocks. It's only when we put them down. It's only when we put them down that we can do what God called us to do, which is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk in humility. See, again, Guys, God created us with free will. He created us with the ability to choose him and he created us with the ability to choose ourselves and our rocks and our own way of doing things. And right then in that moment, Jesus said, all right, you can stone her. You have the right in your mind to do so. You have the free will to do so. But the question created a choice. Everybody with me? The question created a choice and it gave the opportunity for empathy, 
to care and to take a different action. Which is why the oldest, who knew more sin in their life than anybody else, put their stone down and walked away. We put down our stones. We get to do what's really just in God's eyes. Put down our stones. We get to understand how failed we are, how flawed we are, to be able to extend that mercy and grace to others. We were able to point people, humbly point people to the absolute hope that is in Jesus. That's the only solution. Here's the bottom line for today. Because this is just, we have to close this, but here's the bottom line. I want to make sure you see this. It's a long sentence, but understand the power of these words. God's restorative justice, because that's his foundation. He has been restoring and restoring, and he will, again, we've read the end of the story, we know that he will make all things right. But the heart of God for restorative justice, it fuels the response of the redeemed. It fuels the response of the redeemed of God who are mobilized to influence and change systemic injustice. That's who we are. He's put you where he's put you. He's given you the voice. He's given you the opportunity. You are already mobilized in your life to help influence and change things. Now, you, you may not feel like you are, and please hear me. You know, throwing down your rocks is not a passive statement. It doesn't lead you to just kind of sit on the sidelines. That's not what God did. He didn't sit on the sidelines for you. It's not a passive thing. We run towards the darkness. We run towards the mess. We run towards the injustice because we have the opportunity to sow love, to sow grace, to sow humility, to sow mercy, and then we will reap justice. That's our job. That's our ability, right? That's what we're able to do. Paul said it this way. I'm going to read the message, paraphrase, just because I like the way the phrasing works. But this is still the true meaning behind this in Romans uh, 6 or 7. I think it's 6. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's 7. I'm wrong. God. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote or unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition and he entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to, what's the words? Oh, set it right. Justice. Once and for all. Keep going. The law code, which is the rules we talked about last week, it was weakened, as it always was, by the fractured human nature. Because we're broken. And the first thing we do is pick up our rocks. It could have never done that. That doesn't result in justice. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. It was temporary. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their moral muscle but never get around to actually exercising it in real life. You know what? Pause, pause on that last scripture. 
This is probably the thing that's frustrating me the most in our current day culture of the virtue signaling that I'm seeing. Okay? I'll just tell you as your pastor, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't get, don't get so fixed on your own moral muscle to try to show the world who you, how, who you support and how you're trying to do things, but you don't actually sow and do anything. Don't do that. Those who trust God's action in them, redeemed, find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Keep going. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. It will be, it's, it's not gonna work. You think you will solve a problem, there will just be more injustice behind you. Attention to God leads us out into the open and spacious and free life. That's why, go back to it. God's restorative justice, right? It fuels the response of the redeemed because we are the ones mobilized to help make the difference, to have influence. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, and I do agree with it. (laughs) It's always the right time. The time is always right to do what is right. And you may not really know what that is, and I just want to kind of give you the current day sort of compilation of some conversations that I have had. And as I, I too have just been working on it. Okay. There's, it's too easy for me to pick up my stone. I do it every time I see a Facebook post that gets me infuriatingly angry. I pick up my rock. I'm educated. I'm justified and I'm self-assured because I know there's people who agree with me. I got to put it back down. Right. Because that's not the end goal. That's not what's going to sow love and grace and humility. We want to be able to make this the work of the redeemed. That's what we're trusting in, right? That's what we're trusting in in this life. We're not trusting in movements of men, man-made solutions to man-created problems. We want to trust in God. Our attention to God is what's going to take us there. But many people want to know, Personality, you know, just personally, what are some good next steps? And these aren't from me. These are from people of color that I know. And this is people in our church. And these are people in um, uh, other pastors that I've spoken to. This is just a quick list they gave me. Okay, that I've sort of put together. First and foremost, you have to care and have compassion. If you don't care about what's happening in our nation, if you don't care about the injustice that, that is a real injustice, listen, put your rock down. Everybody with me? You have to start there. You have to have compassion. The second thing is education. Please educate yourself. Please read. Please don't read the stuff that just you agree with. You know, find other voices. Help help give you a broader understanding. The third is prayer. And that's not talked about a whole lot right now, but guys, we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our leaders, which nobody wants to do. We need to pray for our leaders down. We need to pray for the leaders of movements that we don't agree with. Why? Because we want to see redeemed people in that movement having an opportunity to make an influence to make change happen. Relationships with people who don't look like you, this is important in your life. Just again, so have the broader understanding, have have an understanding of culture. And influence in your circle, because this is the thing I get from a lot of people. I, I'm, not in, I'm not a policeman, 
right? I'm not in the city. I'm not in the council. I'm not, I don't make the system. I don't have a part in this. I understand that. God has put you in your circle of accountability. He's put you in your circle of influence and you there have the opportunity to put your stone down. Stop looking for your group that's going to make you feel better. Put your stone down and start to act justly. Love mercy as you walk humbly with God. His heart is for justice. Say for justice. And that's the heart we need to have as well. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that, that even though it does sting a little bit to our human nature to not think of ourselves as good, but to understand that you redeemed us for a reason. And in this moment, even in our current day, we cannot trust in the work of man because injustice resides there. The work of man to solve what man created, the problems we've created. So God, we need you. And we need your people. We need the, the redeemed people of God to be mobilized in the right places at the right time to influence and help change the injustices we see and the systems we have in our country and the relationships we see even in our community. God, I pray that we will all recognize what we are reaping right now. We didn't necessarily sow, but God, we are in the midst of reaping. And it's now our opportunity by your power and by your grace to begin to sow love. To love our neighbors like ourselves. To do right, to act justly. To do what you've called us to do by loving mercy and understanding how flawed we are. That we can't even, there's not even a stone to cast once we understand who we are. There's no judgment there. God, the humility that you bring to us to know that as redeemed people of God, it is only by your grace, it is only by your love that we have a part to play, have a voice in even our current day's issues. God, I pray that you will not let this moment pass by. I pray that you would mobilize our church as best we can in the circles we have and in the influence we're given to just see justice come because we know you're for it. And we're praying and hoping and putting our faith in not man-made systems, but in you, God. Our attention is on you. And we believe if it is, it might take a while, but we're, we believe we're going to see what you've called us to see. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.